Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I am the Deputy Editor of Energy Intelligence Finance. Thanks for tuning in to what will probably be our last podcast of 2020. So as we say, good riddance to what has been a very challenging year. We're going to take a look ahead to the future and see what it might hold for an energy industry that is undergoing some pretty profound changes. And to do that, let me welcome to the show our Executive Editor of Operations, Noah Brenner. How's it going, Noah? Uh, it's going as well as it can in 2020, Luke. Yeah, here, here. Uh, and we've also got the head of our competitive intelligence service, Casey Merriman. Hey, Casey. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Good. Okay, so as we're looking ahead to the future here, uh, I guess it makes sense to start with the topic that really kind of underlies the bulk of the decision making at the corporate level. Um, and that, of course, is the oil price. Um, energy intelligence has a view on pricing that is pretty bullish compared to some others. So let's talk about how we came to that view. And and Casey, I guess let's just start with you. Um, where where do we see the oil price heading? And what are the, I guess, conditions that will be required to get us there? And, and what could get in the way of the bull case? Yeah, well, as we have seen the, the past few weeks, uh, Brent has uh, tenuously returned to 50 um, after kind of testing the sub $40 level again. And, you know, when we look forward, as you said, we are pretty bullish compared to a number of others. We see on the horizon uh, the capacity for Brent to actually average the fourth quarter of 2021 around $60, which would peg, you know, USWTI around 57 um, but as you said, to get there, uh, a lot of things do have to happen. Um, you know, for one, uh, you know, we have to really see uh, a continuation of, of demand recovering. You know, we, we've seen a lot of optimism around vaccines and what that could mean for an economic reopening, you know, that coming to fruition. Um, and and the, the big key on the supply side is is OPEC plus. I mean, they have been an enormous driver in the market being able to rebalance to the point uh, where it has been able to stage the recovery it has to date. Um, but, you know, according to our balances, we're, we're going into next year with about 800 million barrels of excess crude and products in, in stocks. And that number is going to have to be worked down. And that means that you know, global supply has to run at a deficit to that still struggling recovering demand. Um, and so, you know, we see that 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 capacity for uh, kind of ongoing rebalancing, uh, putting that and kind of new floors under oil, but it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, you know, I think uh, in the kind of the more immediate term, uh, we have a long winter ahead. Uh, demand is is going to be be challenged, um, and, and OPEC is going to have to figure out how to navigate that. Right? We we saw coming out of of the last meeting um, a desire to try to unwind these very painful cuts, but trying to do so in, in a balanced way. You know, for, for now, they're slightly increasing uh, their output, but are going to review it on a month to month basis. And, you know, so we really need to kind of see that kind of ongoing willingness to to manage the market, which can become challenged, right? If, if we really do see prices being kind of as constructive as we see, um, there are differing views within the group on, on, you know, how much needs to be done to support different levels of prices, but but certainly we, we see the pivot point for the industry coming next year. I mean, you talk about differing views, but the that last OPEC plus meeting, 
was, I think, a little bit more contentious than people were anticipating. Is that, I mean, is that something we should be worried about? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it should not be kind of an, an underappreciated risk, right? Um, I mean, we very much uh, see uh, Russia and uh, the UAE, you know, not wanting to continue these if they don't have to, right? Uh, they very much have growth plans in mind, uh, you know, and would like to get back at those but they don't want to obviously blow up the market, right? Which is how a compromise was reached. But um, yes, I, I think it really speaks to the the challenges ahead. And you know, I think to that point around kind of differing views on price. You know, we we, we know from the past that, for instance, you know, Russia uh, is very much content with you know, say a fifty dollar oil price. Um, it doesn't necessarily want to do much more to support it higher versus, say, a Saudi Arabia who would like to see things be more constructive. But they're going to have to just find a way to navigate that because, if, I mean, if, if there really is kind of a breakdown and those those cuts get pulled too quickly, um, everything is just too fragile for sure. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, one thing maybe to watch for for signaling there could be, I mean, Russia's been very, very concerned about the um, response of U.S. shale to any kind of material or sustained price increase. And if you see shale reinflate, um, you know, perhaps there would be some willingness on, on Russia's part to um, to loosen those cuts or a push on Russia's part to loosen those cuts to try to contain price a little bit. Um, of all the OPEC members, they seem to be the most uh, sensitive, I guess, to the shale response, um, and really are you know they don't want to lose market share to to producers that they feel are higher cost, uh, and and who could blame them for that matter? Of all the OPEC plus members, just to clarify, of all the OPEC plus members, yes, that's that's correct. Um, okay, well. Uh, Either way, we seem to be at a at a, a more comfortable spot uh, in the oil price uh, recently, and that is sort of feeding this sort of growing optimism that seems to be returning to the oil sector, at least on the equity side. Uh, Oil-weighted names really have rallied over the last month or so, presumably on expectations that the oil price will continue to strengthen as you know the COVID vaccines are rolled out. But Noah, I mean, can we expect equity values to continue to increase or is there a bit of irrational exuberance getting passed around with the holiday cheer? Oh, there's probably um, a bit of irrational exuberance, but that doesn't mean, I mean, given how um, how far many of these names had fallen this year, that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, still further room to run. But I mean, just for, for some comparison or for some perspective here, I mean, we're looking at the uh, the super majors are generally up something like about 16% in the past month. Um, and we've seen U.S. indies, or I guess large cap indies, run uh, run up about 28%, a little bit more. Um, and small caps are a bit of a mixed bag, but I mean, on average, something like almost up 45%. Now, you know, that stellar performance in the past month certainly does not put them in, in, you know, in the green for the year by any stretch uh, of the imagination with um, you know, the large, uh, largest companies, the Exxons and, and Shell, BP, Chevron down by about a third, um, and the large cap U.S. independents still down by about 15%. But, you know, certainly we've seen um, investors get behind this idea that uh, oil companies are undervalued. Uh, and they're also looking at the same um, types of investment trends that I think we're going to talk about later on in the program, where, you know, we're just companies are not, they're not able to spend as much money to replace their production. Um, and and they don't want to, investors are not asking them for that. And so, you know, just as we're constructive on the oil price, investors are, seem to be um, as well. And are, are, I guess, dumpster diving maybe for lack of a better term on some of these, um, 
you know, kind of once uh, illustrious energy names. You know, I think whether or not this continues will, it depends on your time horizon. Um, you know, there's certainly an opportunity, it looks like maybe to, uh, for companies to perform very, very well uh, in the next, say, year, uh, maybe even in the kind of medium term, you know, uh, say two to three years as, as we see oil prices come up. Um, and companies really have become much more disciplined and much more efficient. You know, the uh, the idea that these companies might not be able to produce free cash flow consistently, um, you know, certainly that's still, you know, they need to show investors that. But I mean, they're putting together models that would seem to to result in significant free cash flow and that can be distributed to investors or, or paid down uh, or to pay down debt. You know, longer term, I think we still see challenges from, uh, you know, from the energy transition. I mean, these are, these are companies whose commodities um, seem to have finite uh, periods of demand growth. I mean, no matter whether, whether oil demand peaks, uh, has already peaked, if you think that, or is going to peak in five years or 10 years, um, you know, those are real challenges, both from a, a business fundamental perspective, but also from an investor sentiment perspective. Um, you know, for those long kind of generalist buy and hold investors, those those types of timelines are, are scary. They're short. Um, but near term, you know, this might provide a window for, um, you know, perhaps some companies to issue equity. Well, I guess uh, we've seen Talos, a small uh, U.S. Gulf of Mexico operator, um, issue equity. It wasn't especially well received. It was you know, sold at a significant discount. But, um, you know, it, it does open up some options, um, you know, perhaps with some recovery as well. We see a, a bit of a fire lit under M&A markets just in terms of if you get differential performance, it could open up opportunities for companies to use their shares um, to go out and, and, and consolidate. But um, it's certainly, uh, no matter what, I think it's a, a welcome change for both energy investors and companies over the past, uh, say, 12, or I mean, over the past, uh, you know, four to four to six weeks, maybe. Yeah, look, I just want to kind of emphasize one of the points that Noemi that I think is really important. I mean, because we've talked about, you know, on here previously, kind of this idea of whether we were seeing a, a real structural shift, a secular shift and in investor sentiment toward the oil space, um, or if it was simply cyclical. And I think, you know, what we're seeing makes sense in terms of, you know, companies coming off the bottom, right? Deservedly so, given where oil prices are versus where they were earlier in the year. It doesn't mean that the amount of money that, you know, the oil sector can kind of can command uh, isn't smaller, but to to get to kind of capture those investors, um, they're they're there is a case, right, for for at least a small subset of that, right? And so, you know, if the industry um, kind of has been spending the past year kind of redefining their value propositions to investors. And if they can deliver that, then then there is a space for them, right? Even if it is maybe smaller than it was a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, Noah, you mentioned it a minute ago. Um, and I guess the other huge elephant in the room here is this, you know, is, is the energy transition and the and the and this kind of emerging focus on emissions and, and just climate in general. It really has kind of emerged as 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 significant a risk factor as any um, in the oil investment space. And I think the, the consensus is that the pandemic really helped accelerate the energy transition in terms of how companies are thinking about their emissions and, and you know, how, how they're building strategies to take this emerging risk into consideration. So one of the main strategies right now is finding ways to reduce emissions from operations or at least to pledge to do so. 
And there's been lots of these pledges with the European majors being the first and most aggressive and in, in kind of shifting this paradigm. But and, and now just recently, even Exxon has jumped on board with a, a pledge of their own to reduce emissions. So there's kind of two parts of this. One is how likely is it that we actually see the emissions reductions achieved? And then will that even be enough for these more ESG minded investors? No, I mean, I think that's a it's a good question. And first off, you know, when it comes to achieving emissions targets, um, you know, generally companies have have by and large, I think, achieved them uh, in the past. But those emissions targets were not especially ambitious. Um, they were targeting practices like flaring or, or, or methane uh, leakage or things like that. I mean, when it comes to decarbonizing a, a carbon intensive business, I mean, it's a, a much more difficult proposal. That said, I do think that companies are very serious about these. Um, you've seen them align uh, executive pay incentives and, and pay incentives throughout the company um, with some of these goals. Those are those are um, uh, big motivations for the people that work there. We're also seeing an immense amount of scrutiny on on these types of targets by um, by large investors, and so I think that companies are are motivated by more than than simply their um, you know their social license to operate or or their you know, I think this is more than greenwashing to to use that term. Um, on the other hand, I do wonder. You know, these are companies that have routinely put forward very um, ambitious financial targets and not always met them. I mean, I think we do have to prepare ourselves for the the idea that companies, you know, these are are complex undertakings and companies might stumble. Um, I will be interested to see kind of how. Um, you know how those stumbles might be received by by various stakeholders, whether it's it's people in the NGO community that might be keeping a very close eye on these things, or or large investors themselves who want to see these companies um, lower their overall emissions footprint. And so, you know, I I think that will be an interesting kind of litmus test coming up. Um, you know, will that be enough for these ESG-minded investors? Uh, it's a good question. It depends on your kind of ESG-minded investor. I think. I mean, there are. Are lots of people out there and lots of funds out there that, um, you know, that, that no, they, they don't think that there's a, a good future investment case for the oil and gas industry. And that's kind of regardless of, of their emissions profile. Um, they see a lot more risk in a lot of risk in demand um, and just in the overall uh, ability, you know, rising cost of capital and the overall ability to make money in the oil and gas business. But um, to the extent that companies are able to uh, to address concerns and are able, you know, particularly to slide into, we're seeing a lot of um, the formation and, and capital fly into these uh, sort of ESG screened um, index funds. To the extent that that certain oil companies are able to stay within the parameters that allow them to be included in these things, you know, that's I think that would be supportive of of share prices, especially as they've um, these types of vehicles have been very very popular with investors over the past say year. I mean, it's, it's grown quite a bit. Um, but you know, yeah, it's, it's, there's still going to be oil companies at heart and there's still going to be people that, um, that, that see that as a risky proposition, um, given the accelerated pace of the energy transition. Well, yeah, and I think to, you know also too. Know one of the interesting things that we we've seen is is almost this kind of meeting in the middle, or we're we're going that direction. You know, for kind of thinking out to next year is you know you had the European majors lead with the very ambitious you know mid-century type goals, and and even there the the bar has continued to move over this year. But you know these these lofty ambitions 
that are exactly that, right? They're ambitions. And what we heard from a lot of investors was we need a lot more detail on how you're going to get there, right? So, you know, the setting of medium term targets, uh, you know, tangible strategic shifts they're going to make, you know, give offering, you know, some kind of blueprint to actually kind of see that path to the ultimate destination. And a lot of that information has been provided, but, you know, there's kind of more to come and more that's needed. And then you've kind of flip over to the U.S. side, you know, with you, you've seen with, with Exxon, you know, kind of joining the conversation is, uh, it's all about what can I do today? There's no real ambition in it, right? It's, we are putting forward this pledge because we think we can actually tangibly deliver it, you know, in the next three to five years, we, we can offer you this. And what, what we're kind of getting a sense of is, that's great. Investors want that plan, but they also want the ambition too. So I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of over these next 12 months, how that bar gets pushed to find kind of this balance between, you know, show us what you're doing today, but also where are you kind of pledging to go longer term? Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, Casey Mankus, I had a question. Do you think we run the risk of seeing, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call them like upside down porcupine charts? Uh, it's, you know, the the chart about yeah. Exxon's um, production goals. It was sort of famously called a porcupine because they, they sort of always, you, know, you saw a series of lines that kind of ticked down uh, as they missed goals um, repeatedly. Uh, and I, I guess I do wonder kind of what the, the reaction could be um, if we start seeing companies, you know, really miss kind of routinely miss their emissions targets um, and how investors might respond. Yeah, I know it's a really good question. And, and, and kind of to your point, I think even you know, regardless of whether you're a BP or an Exxon, I mean, everything they're doing in the next few years from an actual emissions standpoint is likely they have a really strong line of sight on it. You know, I, I, it almost would be surprising perhaps if they, they missed some of those targets. But when you start getting into the, you know, say post 2025, or you start kind of uh, assessing or benchmarking the strategic investments that are being made today to deliver those emissions goals, you know, 15 years from now, I think that's that's really going to be um, where I think a lot more more pitfalls might be seen, right? You know, all this discussion around renewables returns and how competitive they are versus oil and gas and all those sorts of things. Uh, I, I, I wonder if, if the porcupine charts will, will emerge too, but um, even if they don't, I think there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of uncertainty and new benchmarking out there for sure. Mm-hmm. Upside down porcupine chart. I don't <laughs> think you could have come up with a better term than that, um, but uh, <laughs> you can always try. Um, okay. So just to, um, start wrapping up here a bit uh and in light of all this that we've talked about to this point um let's talk about uh capex and investment activity Uh, obviously this year has seen a major pullback on spending and investment in general for any number of reasons um the uncertainty being um at the top of the list Uh, but what does this mean for our outlook for 2021 and beyond in terms of just investment yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing the industry kind of collectively go into next year with more austerity than we have kind of have seen over the the past twelve months. Very much of the view that um, you know, there like we t- started the conversation with. There's a lot of work to be done, right, for this market to truly rebalance. And we've heard from another a uh, number of companies this idea that the price isn't going to be the only signal that they take into consideration when 
assessing their capital spending budgets over the year. They're also going to look at the underlying fundamentals. Does the market actually need more oil? Uh, it sounds obvious, but um, the, the past decade in particular has shown that that uh, is not the case, particularly in U.S. shale. But but we know we are we are very much seeing the starting point being a year of repair, right? Uh, you know, companies are not just reinvesting, they need to pay down debt, they need to pay shareholders, they they need to kind of sort themselves out so that they can be, you know, stronger in the years to come. But it does raise um, some really interesting potential medium term implications, right? Uh, we've talked about for uh, years at this point about uh, an an investment gap, right, that could lead to a supply shortage. It, it hasn't come to fruition. Kind of shale, non-OPEC has continued to to over-deliver. Um, but, you know, there really is a, a very real possibility that when we're looking a few years out, that that the, this severe austerity does kind of come, come to a point, right? I mean, you even have a company like Total, who is kind of all in on the energy transition strategically, right? And admitted while they were writing down oil sands assets, hey, we see a case for pretty strong oil prices, you know, second half of this decade before we see oil demand peaking. It's, it's a very real thing. Um, but it's just kind of like the the industry just doesn't have the financial capacity to do anything else collectively, right? There are there are some exceptions, right? Like um, Abu Dhabi's national oil company is one where they want to accelerate plans to increase their production capacity by about a quarter uh, because they they very much see any future demand risks as something meaning they need to bring forward, you know, the development of their assets. But by and large, we're definitely going into next year with um, some very tight purse strings. Yeah, I mean, I think that NOC question or part of the equation is is really an interesting one because it's often kind of assumed that, you know, as the public companies, the IOCs pull back, um, that the NOCs would would sort of universally step in there, assuming, you know, it, it, the NOCs from these major producers. Um, but I mean, the the budget that Saudi Aramco has put forward for the next year is is continues to be quite quite restrained. Um, Casey, you had mentioned Adnoc uh, continues to invest and continues to boost investments. They did curb their five-year plan just a little bit, but I mean, very, very marginally. Um, we're seeing Rosneft uh, in, uh, invest uh, much more heavily next year as they look to bring on additional capacity, particularly um, around their Vostok project. But at the same point, we have sort of these NOCs. I mean, if you look at a, a company like Petrobras, where you know, as you said, they, I, I think that might have even been the, the line they used of, you know, they're, they're looking at whether or not the market needs their um, their production, whether the market needs their oil. Uh, you know, it's a very low cost producer. It's, it's you know, very advantaged barrels. Um, at the same point, they, you know, they don't necessarily see um, see it being profitable to, to simply push it into the market. Um without a a regard for the fundamentals. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how um, these NOCs that are positioned with advantaged resources uh, choose to address uh, that potential supply gap because they also do need to balance things like the near-term, you know, the near-term needs of of their own um, country treasuries and things like that. I mean, it's um, the calls on on their capital can be can be varied and complicated and and right now, at a time when the you know the world economy is 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 generally hurting, um, you know it, it can be a very complex equation for them looking ahead. 
Okay, well, I think we're going to need to leave it there for now. Um, I'm sure we could go on and on about what um, <laughs> what the future may hold, um, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. So um, I guess uh, thanks for being here, Casey. Absolutely, thanks. And thank you, Noah. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you'd like to see more of our news and views, please check out our website, energyintel.com, where you can subscribe to our services and look at some of the great work our reporters and analysts have been doing uh, during this incredibly challenging year. Thanks for sticking with us, and we wish everyone happy holidays wherever you may be. Stay healthy and safe and drink all the eggnog you want. We'll be back next year, and we'll see you then.